Welcome to Streaming Into the Void, where we discuss all the streaming news for the week ending June 17th, 2023. This week, Disney's problems are elemental. I'm Kim Hollis, smart enough not to have watched The Idol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Also, David Mumpower, author of Behind the Ride, streaming media analyst, and still dark on Reddit, but you can find him on his Discord named That Guy Running Reddit is an Idiot. Oh my god, he's using Elon Musk as an idol. Elon Musk. Yeah. And the podcast is produced and edited by Raul Burial, who's definitely not running out of space to bury the bodies of former podcast co-hosts. What? (laughs) Tim's just on vacation. (laughs) In our deep dive, Bob Iger just stretched his reach into 2031. What's happening at Disney, David? Oh, this was one of those weeks whose imprint is going to be felt for a while. And by the way, one of the possible outcomes from this is we might see Bob Iger extend his contract as CEO of Disney. Does anybody actually want the job given the current financial climate and the hole Disney has to climb out of? I don't buy into that logic. I know what the current comments are against Disney. It has become slightly lower margin. However, Disney is pacing right now to become a company with 100 billion in revenue by the end of fiscal 2025 at its current pace could get there in 2024. Who wouldn't want to run a company that size because of the lucrative potential? I mean, you look at what David Zaslav has done with his bonuses on much, much smaller entities. Somebody could become a billionaire overnight by being CEO of Disney, but that's probably not going to happen. And we saw that because two different things happened this past week. And one is Disney changed its entire release schedule so that they can allow for the writer strike. That's the thing I didn't want to talk about. Raul kept going, David, we got to talk about this. And I go, no please. No. Raul was right. I should have talked about it sooner. We're now seeing the imprint as Disney delays several titles. And on top of that, Disney's CFO just left ostensibly because of a medical leave because her husband has apparently been in a medical facility since January. However, an unnamed source went to the Wall Street Journal on Friday and had a lot to say about McCarthy leaving Disney. And that person, let's call them not at all Christine McCarthy, wink, wink, indicated that this was not a mutual decision and that Disney pushed them out because the CFO of the company did not see eye to eye with the CEO, Bob Iger. Companies don't really want to be looking for a new CEO and CFO at the same time, which means, yes, there is reason to believe Disney will extend Iger's contract again. I don't even know which part of this is the bigger story here, but Raul, let's talk about release dates. Did you notice what happened with Avatar? I was reminded that there is, in fact, three more Avatar movies on the slate, the last one of which is now slated to come out in when again is that, David? 2031. Hey, what year is it right now? (laughs) It's 2023, David. The last Avatar movie is not for another eight years. So we're going to do that after the World War. That's the plan at this point. (laughs) My God. Yeah, I don't even know what to say here. Bob Iger came back in November 2022 and was ostensibly only supposed to stay through November 2024. What he has just done is he has just stretched out his legacy for another eight years. No hyperbole. That's what we're looking at at this point. And on top of that, Iger has just firmly recommitted Disney to the theatrical release as a process and a key part of the life cycle of cinema for another eight years, which is kind of amazing. 
if you think about it. So indeed, even if Disney can find a successor for Bob Iger before that last movie on the slate is released, the fact of the matter is that this is Bob Iger's slate. These are the movies that he has put on the schedule for the company. These are the movies that the company is working on. And so for years to come, regardless of who's really in charge, everyone's going to have to say, well, Bob decided that this movie was going to be coming out at this time. And short of, you know, production delays, which is always potentially there, the next decade or so has been basically scripted out by Bob Iger. It has. And even more than most people realize, which is part of the game isn't just announcing a release date now. It's setting up deals with the most expensive theaters, the ones that show IMAX screenings, the ones that show 3Ds, the ones that are the top earning venues in the country. You want to lock them into contracts as early as possible so that you ensure your film isn't just playing in the best places, but also to make sure you're making the highest profit margin per venue. And that's the thing nobody thinks about enough. And that is how much money you get for the same movie when you exhibit it in IMAX or in one of these 3D theaters. So Iger has just basically said, we're going to release Avengers Kang Dynasty, May 1st, 2026. We're going to release Avengers Secret Wars, May 7th, 2027. Hey, when did Guardians of the Galaxy come out? It came out the first week of May. That is one of those times on the schedule that year in and year out, the biggest box office numbers have happened on that weekend. It's the first week in November. It is Christmas week. All these times, Disney is claiming the best theaters. Iger has just planted his flag for about eight to 10 of these dates over the next eight years. And on top of that, he's also said, yeah, we're going to do two Star Wars movies in the same calendar year. The hope would be by that point, people aren't tired of Star Wars, which was the issue that happened through 2019. But we're right now facing a proposition where Star Wars suddenly is everywhere again in theaters after an extended absence. It's kind of a fascinating thing, but that year is May 2026, December 2026, two different Star Wars movies. These are all tactics where Iger has said, we were releasing things day and date in theaters and at home, or we were just releasing things on Disney+. Plus. We're not going to do that anymore. We have decided that the marketing phase, which is what the theatrical releases really are, is too important and we're not making enough money. And the reason we know this is Disney has an elemental problem. Raul, I'm going to talk about box office in a while, but you're aware of the fact that Elemental's not doing well this weekend, right? Yes, I've read the reports and a lot of it seems to lean into a lack of awareness and then a potential harm to the Pixar brand that was done by Disney putting Pixar movies on streaming rather than putting them out theatrically. Yeah, I wouldn't say harm, but I realize that philosophically, I don't line up with a lot of people on this. I just think and we actually saw some different data this week that drove home this point. It's a different audience. There are some people who are never going to go to a movie theater, period. They just won't even consider it. And then there are other people who, for whatever reason, view a title that releases on home video or on streaming first as an inferior product. And so what's happened is Pixar accidentally became deemed that way with its releases because we didn't have after onward several titles in theaters instead stuff like soul went straight to disney plus so now what we've seen is pixar titles just aren't grabbing people in theaters the way they once did elemental this weekend is just the latest proof that disney animation has kind of taken a hit because it is now diminished in that way to some 
And for that reason, the box office is affected. Iger is now saying, eh, I don't care about any of that. We are going to firmly commit to this path, which was the old path. And this is the guy who actually was the creator of Disney Plus saying this. Yeah, that's it then. So we're seeing a pivot away from Disney Plus. Disney Plus is now a secondary thought to the Walt Disney Company. I wouldn't say secondary. I would say ancillary. What Disney is continuing now is what it previously did with home video, which is we release something in theater. We spend our marketing money on the theatrical release so that people are aware of the product. And then there's the self-fulfilling prophecy where we get all the headlines of X film did X much opening weekend. It must be really good. And so people will be more inclined to want to watch it when it's available on streaming. That is the model we're returning to at this point. Now, I have any number of questions about the viability of that for several reasons, but let's just hold that thought, say they're correct. Then we start looking at it and we realize Disney is going to have to reinvent Pixar. They're going to have to prove once again that Pixar titles are that kind of special. And it looks like their next two projects are likely to do that. And the reason why I say that is the next one is Inside Out 2 and the one after that is Elio, which is a little boy, accidentally becomes the person who must defend the Earth in court against a universe of other planets that believe Earth has committed crimes and deserves to be destroyed. These are big idea Pixar stories, the kind that we've kind of been missing. Elemental, which we love, it has always struggled to strike a chord with people, and that is a little bit problematic. Well, there was one report this week from Universal, of all people, who gave us a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look into their numbers. Universal is, at this point, famous for having their 30-day release window. They're the ones who take their movies to streaming the soonest. And evidently, their analysis suggests that people who will see a movie in theater and people who will see a movie on streaming are two entirely different demographics. And they feel that they're not necessarily scavenging one group of people to benefit the other. So it sounds like there does remain a population out there that is looking for movies on streaming. The only thing that's important now is how long should a movie be in theaters before you take it to streaming? Is that correct? Yes, that's what's happening. Universal is basically reinforcing what we've been arguing all along in this podcast. And that is some people just don't care about theaters and are never going to care. And that really is most consumers. They're never going to go in a movie theater except maybe one once every two or three years. But they will watch stuff on streaming because nobody ever talks about it. The reality is we watch almost everything at home rather than in a movie theater. All the films and TV shows we watch, those are at home. Those are streaming. Well, now Universal's come out and said, hey, we just discovered we got $500 million from this in about 18 months. Overall, we got a billion in three years just from selling titles. And we're not talking about streaming them for free or streaming them via a service. We're talking about people going Vudu, iTunes, and the Amazon Prime Video Instant Store, and they pay for these titles. And they're getting, you know, let's say $350 million annually just this way on top of the other licensing. That's revenue that's found money because that's a market that didn't exist. That is the way we're going to gradually replace DVD. We have known this for a while now. What's different about it is people haven't settled on the best approach for how many days. And Raul, you're absolutely correct to mention that. Avatar, The Way of Water, the sequel, dominated theaters in December 
in January. It has been available on Disney Plus and HBO Max for, oh, what, five days, seven days? That's how long Disney just expanded the window for a top three film all time. Whereas Super Mario Brothers movie, we're having this conversation. We think it's going to be on Peacock by the end of the month. We're not 100% sure, but so that would be like a three-month window even for one of the most successful films of the year. We're kind of figuring out how the process should work. We're just filling in the blanks on the current unknowns of the process. And we have just a couple of rapid fire stories this week. CBS indicated that they'd be leaning into Paramount's slate of content from Paramount Plus to fill out their fall TV schedule. Yeah, in light of the strike, CBS is doing everything they can to keep their fall TV schedule fresh. As we already know, there's a number of reality shows that are slated for the fall, and a number of previous reality shows have expanded from one hour to 90 minutes, including Survivor and The Amazing Race. And as apparently the CW has already bought up every Canadian production there is, there's very little left for CBS to use on their fall slate other than reruns of streaming shows. That's right, folks. Folks, if you liked Evil and were annoyed when Evil became a streaming-only show, I've got good news because they've messed this up so bad, they're not going to bring Evil back. At the moment, they're not as worried about Paramount Plus as they are about having a network schedule this fall. So this is the new Plan B. The Plan B looks like what we used to call Plan A before everyone tried to change everything, which just goes to show not all disruption goes right, but sometimes you get what you need, and that's what's happening here. Although I'm sure at this point, the producers of Star Trek Picard were wishing they hadn't put in all those full frontal nudity scenes. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Now, before we talk about the ratings, let's look at this week's box office. We'll quickly touch last week on Transformers, which we briefly talked about in our previous episode. It did come in with about 61 million domestically, and it's currently sitting at nearly 200 million worldwide. It's a pretty bad performance for that film and not a great sign for the Transformers franchise. Yeah, that's what's happening right now. We referenced this last week. They're trying to redeem two different franchises for Hasbro. Hasbro's like, hey, we miss all that toy sales money we were getting at the height of the popularity of Transformers, but the problem is, like Fast and the Furious, Transformers movies have generally been some degree of terrible. Believe it or not, quality impacts profit in many cases. So we've got a film that they're saying costs $200 million and was probably a lot more than that, and it is not going to get the necessary amount of revenue to turn a profit, and yet compared to the other stories we're about to talk about at the box office camp, this is possibly the winner, isn't it? Yeah, maybe so. Well, start with the movie that is likely to win this weekend. We're recording on Friday night, so we're basing this on projections after Thursday night previews. The Flash, which has had a troubled history coming up to its opening, is probably going to open somewhere between 70 and 80 million, probably closer to the 70 million mark. That's pretty tough considering that the studio is saying it costs 200 million to make. We know that's not true in the loop. <laughs> but Kim, I heard this was the best superhero movie ever made. <laughs> I'm just here to say if they want to just compile all the Michael Keaton scenes and make its own separate movie, I would watch that instead. <laughs> but. <laughs> 
So just to be clear, the film that we've been saying for 18 months now they should never, ever release because they were going to lose money on it is going to lose money? It's going to lose probably a lot of money. Okay. Yeah, the $200 million budget, it should come with a two-drink minimum to say that. $200 million is what it costs to shoot the first time. As a reminder, they've actually filmed this four different times. There's actually enough cutting room floor stuff. They could probably turn The Flash into a trilogy. I'm not even being that hyperbolic. They have just tried and tried again with this because because they were stubborn about it. And the best Flash trivia comment you could ever make is the Flash television series just ended after, I don't know, nine seasons, something like that. It didn't exist when they started this. That is an honest-to-God true story about how long and disastrous this production has been. But it had a male lead, and that's what David Zaslav wanted. And we're going to talk a couple more times this podcast about how David Zaslav is getting what he wants. And it turns out he is the dinosaur moron we thought he was. So what you're this saying is- here, David, is that there's a potential for a Snyder cut? <laughs> Lord, we well, hope not. They gave the director of this more work. He's going to get a Batman movie. So congratulations to him for falling upward at an epic rate. (laughs) Okay. Obviously, our other big release this weekend is Disney and Pixar's Elemental. It was coming off of some mixed word of mouth from its debut at Cannes, where it got a standing ovation, but the actual critics who came from that showing were not as kind as the ovation itself was. I think it was a really big mistake for Disney to have premiered this film at Cannes because I think the word of mouth in general is really positive now that it's debuting and people are seeing it. I'm seeing a lot of love for this movie. I think it's going to come in with about maybe 50 million. There's a couple things that might be in its favor this weekend. Could be that Father's Day may get some people to go to a family film together, but it's also Juneteenth on Monday. Some of us, I do, have a long weekend because of the Juneteenth holiday, so you may see a little extended box office for the weekend for that reason. So Kim's a little more optimistic about its faith than I am. I, I think we're still looking at something that's going to be in the 30s. And I, I just think it is exactly the comment Kim made about Khan, which is Disney made a terrible miscalculation here. And there's actually an interview with Pete Doctor and Variety today where he's kind of piecing together what went wrong, where he was confused by the fact that the people at Khan were clapping for it. There was a seven-minute ovation, and then the reviews came out, and they were tepid. And that's kind of what happens when you're doing this, you're only going to have a handful of people at con who are certified Rotten Tomatoes critics. And it turned out four out of seven gave the film a thumbs up. One really disliked it. And the other two gave it a tepid thumbs down. If they had said tepid thumbs up, the review would have been in the, you know, 80 percentile way up there. And everybody was like, oh, it's a hit. But instead, it was in the mid 50s, which meant that it was technically thumbs down on Rotten Tomatoes. And so the reports that came out were, hey, Disney is missed again with its latest Pixar film. You have to think about these things and it's bizarre to me because Disney does such a great job with Marvel of making sure that first set of critics are people who's, you know, basically devoted their lives to Marvel characters and yet they will risk Elemental in a situation like this and they've done the same thing with Indiana Jones and Dial of Destiny which comes out next week which has had exactly the same thing happen. Disney's target audience is not at the Cannes Film Festival. They should know this and they should have been smarter than this but because of it, 
this film is not going to get the reception it deserves because people have prejudged it. And that's frustrating, isn't it, Kim? It is. And I'm sure that we will talk about this when we go through what's been keeping us busy this week. It's a delightful film. It's beautiful. They've done a wonderful job of world building. The character animation is tremendous. The story is touching and there are a lot of funny elements as well to the film. And again, a lot of our our friends who are movie fans who have seen the film, everybody agrees that it's kind of a fun, almost teenage rom-com type movie. It's a shame that the initial word of mouth was sort of middling. Disney just simply has to get better with its marketing. It's in a cycle right now where it doesn't understand that the people who are watching its films are a little more jaded and they need to be sold more on why they should actually spend their money to come see something in theaters. Disney isn't doing a good enough job with that. And it's also not doing a strong job with its elevator pitches, where if you wanted to explain what Elemental is to someone, that would not be easy to do based on the trailers they've shown. If you've seen the movie, you could do it easily, which is Fire Elemental falls in love with Water Elemental. They obviously can't be together, but they fall in love anyway. Simple. But... Disney failed completely with its marketing here. Instead, you've got people thinking it looks either like Inside Out, which I think the only real resemblance it has to Inside Out is some of the color scheme. The anger character does look like her father, the fire elemental. That's true. And then Zootopia, which has a city and elemental has a city. I think those are the commonalities. But other than that, they really bear very little in common. So sounds like Elemental is actually going to get beat out by some movies that carried over from the week before, including, correct me if I'm wrong here, but another Disney movie, The Little Mermaid? Was it a mistake for Disney to put two movies out so close together? I definitely would say no to that. And the explanation is simple. Disney has done this before. This isn't a unique strategy. They often will debut a a Disney film around Memorial Day and then a Pixar film in June. June is historically the Pixar month. This is more about the fact that Disney has done something with its Pixar titles by releasing them on Disney+. And it's kind of just expecting the audience to go back to normal and say, hey, we will go see anything Pixar in theaters. No. They need to be persuaded. So this is on the marketing department at Disney. And should also mention that the Blackening is coming out this weekend. And I think it will have a small but dedicated audience. It's a humorous horror film. I'd say it probably is going to come in with maybe 11, 12 million. All right, let's take it into the ratings. All right. Well, we have the ratings for the week of May 15th, 2023. And at the top again, we have Queen Charlotte, the Bridgerton story. This is its third week on the chart, and it's still holding strong at 1 billion minutes. But we've talked about this one plenty so far. At number two, Ted Lasso is finally putting in a strong showing at 769 million minutes. I would speculate to say that if it had been a stronger week across the board for originals that Ted Lasso wouldn't be here. But given that there is a broad weakness in uh, streaming ratings so far this summer, Ted Lasso is coming in strong. And as we come into the last couple of episodes of the series, we may just well see Ted Lasso come in at a billion minutes in a week or two. The rebooted Queer Eye on Netflix comes in at number three with 558 million minutes, while Firefly Lane is 
waning now at 473 million minutes at number four. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel comes in at number five with 443 million minutes. That is not the uh, season finale of Marvelous Ms. Maisel. It'll probably trend up next week, and it's also possible it'll trend up the following week, just depending on how they do the dates. Missing, Dead or Alive, the docu-reality show about police investigations of missing people is at number six with 415 million minutes. Bridgerton, which is getting a little boost from the Queen Charlotte series, is still here on the charts at number seven with 415 million minutes. And Sweet Tooth, which we've seen on the charts for a couple of weeks now, is at number eight with 300 177 million minutes. One of the only two new shows on the charts this week, XO Kitty, the Kissing Booth spinoff, makes its debut, although a very weak debut, at number nine with 364 million minutes. That is the full 10 episodes on Netflix, of course, as Netflix tends to release all episodes at once. And then the new season of Selling Sunset, the reality show about people selling real estate, comes in at number 10 with 332 million minutes for its 56 episodes. I am going to disagree that Exo Kitty is a bad number because Netflix released it immediately. And on top of that, my goodness, what do you think that costs to make? $5 <laughs> with that cast? They're ecstatic with the result. And I think that what we're seeing, Kim, would you agree this is the Nielsen blind spot? Because it is all over the charts when we pull up Netflix, isn't it? Yes, it is. And again, this is probably one that's getting watched on mobile devices rather than on the big screen. And indeed, Exo Kitty premiered on the 18th, which was halfway through this week. But as Kim pointed out, given that it skews much younger, and as we say repeatedly, the Nielsen ratings focus exclusively on people watching shows on their TVs and not on mobile devices. You could expect that most people watching Exo Kitties were probably watching on mobile. And the fact that only four days of Exo Kitty still managed to rank it in ninth place is, yeah, okay, I'll concede that, David. That was probably a very strong showing given that none of the mobile viewing made it onto this chart. This is just Nielsen missing the point. This is why whenever we do these ratings, we say, be careful with this data. It is not fully representative of what's happening. ExoKitty is massive. I mean, absolutely massive for something that is dirt cheap to produce. So it is just full of when, and we're not saying that correctly because Nielsen is just wrong here. Did you just tee me up for Nielsen being wrong, David? because <laughs> we're moving into the movies charts and before we talk about this week's movies chart we have to talk about last week's movies chart which had in number three a movie from amazon prime video which when we told you about the charts wasn't there but later on that weekend or the following week nielsen updated their charts that is air the movie about nike and their deal with michael jordan that was directed and stars ben affleck as well as matt Davis. Air came in last week with 520 million minutes, but we didn't know that when Nielsen published our charts, that movie wasn't there. That was the number three movie last week. This week, Air is still there, but we will get to it. It has moved down the charts. At number one this week is The Mother, the Jennifer Lopez action thriller, which is holding strong at 1.16 billion minutes. So that is two weeks in a row of a very strong showing for this Jennifer Lopez movie on Netflix. At number two, we actually have something new, and it's from Disney+. Plus. It is Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, with 766 million minutes. And this came to Disney+. Plus 
plus i think it was probably 45 days after its theatrical release so that's not bad the movie did not fare very well at the box office after its initial very strong showing it it dropped quickly in the box office ratings but it does seem to be showing some strength in the streaming ratings now I don't even know if I'd call this strength. This is actually one of the lower totals we've tracked for the first week of an MCU movie when it debuts on Disney+. Plus. I strongly suspect that by this time next week, it'll have 30 to 40% fewer viewers and it'll be gone from the charts in three or four weeks. It's going to follow the same trajectory everything else has, which is people are going to go, oh, that wasn't very good. One movie that is showing a lot of strength and a lot of legs on the streaming charts is the Tom Hanks weepy drama, A Man Called Otto, which is still here at number three with 621 million minutes on Netflix. At number four, we have another theatrical release making its debut on the streaming charts. The Dungeons and Dragons movie Honor Among Thieves from Paramount Plus with 493 million minutes. Now that strikes me as a really good number for Paramount Plus. Yeah, I was one of those. I watched that and I really enjoyed it on Paramount Plus. I was glad to have had access to it on streaming. One of the weird outliers on Netflix, as we always have some, is Ted. The Talking Teddy Bear movie from uh, Seth MacFarlane from Netflix coming in at number five with 440 million minutes, which is above the number six movie, Air, the movie we just told you about, the Nike Michael Jordan movie, which dropped to 404 million minutes this week after its, I'd say, not strong premiere last week. This is a movie that Amazon dropped a lot of money on with Ben Affleck's production studio in hopes of getting a hit. And honestly, I don't know that that's really going to pay off for them. Yeah, at some point, we're going to have to do a deep dive into how Amazon is actually doing with these projects. I completely agree with you. This seems like a pretty large swing and a miss, which is amazing for a Michael Jordan title. I mean, what are you doing? Yeah, Ben Affleck is a, an Academy Award winning director. It's got a great pedigree with both Ben Affleck and Matt Damon in it. And still, it couldn't really garner all that much viewership. But it may just be one of those titles that sticks around for a while. That's certainly something that Amazon is hoping for with its projects, as a lot of folks have knocked Amazon for their spy thriller series, Citadel, that never made it onto the charts. And yet Amazon keeps saying it's great. It's a hit in India. Okay but no one's watching it in North America. So maybe their data is telling them something different than what we know. Also have some pride, India, says the guy who's watched Citadel. <laughs> At number seven, we have the Anna Nicole Smith documentary, You Don't Know Me, with only 274 million minutes. These are very weak numbers for movie ratings on Nielsen, which would explain why a documentary about Anna Nicole Smith's life made it onto the chart. At number eight, we have the second week for the Spanish language movie, Que Viva Mexico, this week with 242 million minutes, which is just a dip below what it did last week at 298 million minutes. And at number nine, The Crudes on Netflix, the DreamWorks animated movie at 232 million minutes. And then at number 10, something from Netflix called Ugly Dolls, which I'm going to have to look up now. That was a theatrical release, and it did not do well. This is hysterical. Oh, I remember this one. This was the animated movie. It must have just made its way onto Netflix, or honestly, the fact that it's just at number 10. It may be one of those movies that just floats near the bottom of the charts. And this week, because of the weakness in the ratings, 
happens to have come in at 232 million minutes, making it the number 10 movie on the charts. David and I were even talking about that kind of thing earlier as we were looking at what is on Netflix's movie charts. If you're looking at what people are watching today, Minions, The Rise of Gru was hanging around at the bottom. And you just wonder if that's one of those movies that probably is always somewhere on the chart. And the other thing, we would be talking this up so much more if Netflix hadn't already just wowed us so regularly. This is a film that had 20 million in domestic box office. I mean, it was a bomb. Just not even a disappointment, a bomb. And yet here it is showing up on Netflix because it's a children's story available for free on the service. And so people are like, yeah, all right, ugly doll, sounds cute. All right. And then we come to the acquired list, which, as Tim would remind us, is 10 shows we've seen before. Topped off with NCIS, which is brought to us by both Netflix and Paramount+. Plus. Bluey was number two, Coco Melon number three, so a couple of stalwarts there. Number four, we have perhaps the most significant show on this list. And I know I've said that it was 10 shows that we've seen before, but in fact, I think this is the first time we've seen this one. It's SWAT, the CBS show. And for the first time ever, this one's credited to three different streaming services. Tim would be upset with us if we didn't mention it. The three services in question are Paramount Plus, Hulu, and Netflix. But again, that was probably like 95% Netflix and 5% everybody else. (laughs) Succession is running out its last season at number five. The Big Bang Theory from HBO Max at number six. Rick and Morty from HBO Max and Hulu at number seven. Grey's Anatomy at number eight. Shameless, another Paramount Plus slash Netflix show at number nine. And Supernatural at number 10. And that's what we've got this week. As uh, David has pointed out, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is closing in on its last episode. And we also know Ted Lasso is closing in on its last episode. And of course, Succession as well ended on the same week as those two. So watch for a spike in all three of those over the next couple of weeks. All right. Thank you for that, Raul. In our green lights and cancellations this week, Jason Bateman will be starring and directing an eight-episode series on Netflix based on the Esquire article, Daddy Ball, about two Long Island fathers who take coaching their little league teams too far. Happy Father's Day, everyone. (laughs) Honestly, despite the fact that it's based on true events, sounds like well-trotted territory. Parents who take their little kids' sporting events too far and get into feuds. As mentioned, Netflix has also renewed Exo Kitty for a second season. You know, one day everything on Netflix will be part of the Kissing Booth extended universe. I mean, can you really say for sure that Extraction and Squid Game aren't, huh? It's really going to bake your noodle when you find out that she is the daughter of one of the Stranger Things kids. <laughs> <laughs> And the animated preschool series Spirit Rangers has been renewed for a third season with former U.S. Poet Laureate Joy Harjo set to write an episode. Spirit Rangers features an all-Indigenous writer's room and more than 100 Native or Indigenous crew members. That's incredible. That really is. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Chelsea Peretti's film First Time Female Director debuted this week at the Tribeca Film Festival and has been picked up by Roku. I don't know that that's a vote of confidence in the project. (laughs) We'll remember Chelsea Peretti from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yep. Max presented a slate of original animated programming at the Annecy International Animation Festival this week, including new seasons for 
Velma and Clone High and reminded us that the Harley Quinn spinoff Kite Man, hell yeah, was still on its way. As well as another DC animated series, Creature Commandos, produced by DC Universe bosses James Gunn and Peter Safran. Hell yeah! (laughs) (laughs) It's like the ultimate good news, bad news, good news, bad news. Renewing Velma's just stubbornness, right? Yeah. I have no explanation for that. Mm -mm. And Apple TV Plus announced this week that the post-apocalyptic drama Silo had been renewed for a second season. The show's been pretty buzzy, so I'm not surprised, but I'd love an inside look. And of course, we're never going to have this. An inside look at the numbers for the show to see if people are really watching it or not. As always, we close out with what's been keeping us busy over the past week. And we're going to start with Raul because I think David and I are going to cover some similar territory. Well, then in a stunning twist, I'm going to tell you about a show I watched on Peacock. No. Yes. Mrs. Davis stars Betty Gilpin, which some might remember from the Netflix show about women wrestlers, Glow. Gilpin is Simone, a nun who's sequestered herself away from the rest of the world where most people are now bound to an AI called Mrs. Davis. Simone blames Mrs. Davis for the death of her father and won't have anything to do with the AI, even though its intentions appear to be benevolent. But when Mrs. Davis finally gets through to Simone, she's given an offer she can't refuse. If Simone can find the Holy Grail, Mrs. Davis will willingly shut herself off. So Simone sets off on a global trek to find the Holy Grail. Across eight episodes, Simone endures zany adventures. Yes, zany adventures. As she finds herself at odds with a group also looking for the Grail and questions Mrs. Davis's true motivations. The set pieces throughout the series are majestic in the supporting cast, which includes Jake McDormand from Limitless and The Right Stuff, the series, not the movies and Margot Martindale is incredible even though most of the actors are relative unknowns Andy McQueen particularly shines as Jay unfortunately to reveal too much about the plot would be to spoil the story as the series is peppered with twists and turns that'll have you repeatedly saying what the f-? I will say that there's a sly little remark late in the series that suggests This world never saw Star Wars, the implication being that if you don't watch Star Wars, you'll become subjugated to an AI. David? I'm okay with that. (laughs) For all its zaniness, Mrs. Davis ends on some poignant notes. The series is mostly a comedy, but not without some rather dark elements and really some rather bloody elements as well. It took me until the second episode to really get hooked when one of the big reveals happens. But after that, I could not stop watching. I quite enjoyed Mrs. Davis on Peacock and I highly recommend it to you. All right. Thanks, Raul. I have always thought it looked interesting. So David and I both saw Elemental last night and I have alluded to it earlier in the podcast. I thought it was a really beautifully designed film. The world building is fantastic. Elemental City is really cool. It has a variety of different set pieces for the earth, wind, water, and fire that really makes sense. Ember, who is our main character, she is an absolutely gorgeous character and really well animated. Love her. It's a touching and really just fun 
movie. And also, I'll just say that the up short at the beginning of the movie, Carl's date, also very charming as well. David, your thoughts? I always use Kim as my North Star on Disney stuff, as my bellwether. And I could tell during the movie that she had the stars in her eyes. That's not an exaggeration. I didn't love it on the level she did, but that's because it really captivated and swept her off her feet. With me, I was just impressed by the artistry of it. It is one of the most visually gorgeous movies I've ever seen, legitimately. The way they do layering on animation, there's a screen and then a screen behind the screen. Element City, whenever it's in the background, is just breathtaking, absolutely breathtaking. And then what you're always looking for with Pixar titles is that they offer some Pixar magic. And this one did that to a very impressive degree at a couple of points. And there is one scene, I'm going to call it either arguably the first date or second date scene that involves the song Steal the Show. And that scene to me is on a level of the Wally outer space scene where Eva and Wally are flying around and just enjoying themselves and being carefree. I loved it. I was absolutely captivated by it. I mean, it it really won me over. The story isn't perfect and it's a little, you know, it's a little too overt for Pixar at times. And that's one of the things that Pete Doctor referenced in that interview, something I've said about Pixar. It's the same problem that Star Wars and Marvel have. You're not competing with other projects. You're competing with yourself. When people watch a Pixar movie, they go, is it as good as Up? Is it as good as Toy Story? Is it as good as Wally? This isn't one of those, but it's still very, very good. I would say it's better than like Onward. And I really liked Onward. This is great storytelling. And the other thing I want to say is a friend of ours, someone who watches the podcast, it actually said, hey, let's all hate watch The Idol together. And I'm not someone who hate watches as a rule. I watched everything for 20 years. I've done my time and now I just want to be entertained. And so I specifically avoid things I don't think look good. It turned out my instincts were absolutely right. The Idol is everything that was wrong with Hollywood in the 80s and 90s that we have spent the last 10 to 15 years trying to clean up. But it's how David Zaslav, a man in his mid-60s, remembers Hollywood. And so he has put his foot down and said, hey, we want a sexy thing about a bunch of sexy kids who are having sex all the time. It doesn't matter if it's good or not, just sex. And so that's what it is. It is, frankly objectively terrible and pretty offensive to boot and i'm not easily offended the idol is a step backward and if that's going to be the hbo under david zasloff it's just another reason to be counting down the days till he's gone i understand there's a scene in the idol where they humiliate an intimacy coordinator is that right yes yes it is well, I guess that tells you everything you need to know about the sentiments of this show's creators. I mean, the worst part is they also had an intimacy coordinator on set for the series. So imagine how belittled that person feels. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Streaming Into the Void. Please consider subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we welcome your feedback. Remember that we're on social media at Streaming Void and online at StreamingVoid.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Be sure to watch for us again next week. 